Appreciate, um, appreciate being part of a church where we've got good, faithful men that uh, can bring us the Word of God, who set a good example. And uh, I'm blessed as a pastor to have a lot of good men here, and uh, it's just a joy to be part of what God's doing here. Brother Ben, you come. Make sure you understand this the right way. It's a shame to see him here today, isn't it? Under the circumstances. Um, John chapter 17 this morning. John chapter 17. The weather has been warm and warm and warm and you're wondering when it's ever going to cool down. And um, some people around here, and I... I haven't talked to anyone much about it yet. I know there's this theory about the color of the woolly worms and stuff like that as to what winter is going to be like. Uh, and some people look at the farmer's almanac and wonder what the winter is going to be like. Uh, I'm going to tell you I'm pretty sure, it might be hot at the moment, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a long winter. Because if the Panthers can't figure out how to get the ball across the touchdown line, it's going to be a long winter, right? Did anyone watch that game on Thursday night? That was a waste of time, wasn't it? Ay, ay, ay. Things could be worse. Things could be worse. John chapter 17 this morning, let's stand as we read just one one verse by way of uh, text, but we're going to have a, a look at a whole lot more scripture here uh, as we go through this this morning. John 17 and verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. Amen. Um, let's have a word of prayer and then get straight into this this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know these people came here today. They came here not to hear from me, but to hear from you. And when they walk out of here this morning, Lord, I ask that that is exactly what they will have done, that they will be able to leave saying that it was good to be in the house of God, to be fed the word of God and to hear from you and uh, your Holy Spirit guiding and leading in their lives as well. So we ask for your blessing upon all that we do now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated now, may the Lord uh, bless that short reading there from his word. Um, this is a passage of scripture that many of you are very familiar with this morning. Um, at this time, as Jesus speaks these words here in John chapter 17, verse 1, uh, the whole chapter of John 17 is a prayer that Jesus makes. It is not the prayer that he prayed or the prayers that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it takes place after uh, the Passover with his disciples, but it takes place before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane because it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, um, and so on there. So, when you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, you can conclude that Jesus was on his way to the Mount of Olives when he prayed this prayer. Uh, and if you want to check that out, you can look at Matthew chapter 26, uh, 26 verses 30 and verse 36, 
and also John chapter 18 and verse 1. But those are just sort of incidental. That's not necessarily super important. I, I just want you to understand that what Jesus prayed here in John chapter 17 um, is before he gets to that Garden of Gethsemane. It's important to understand that Jesus, uh, you know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. And Jesus' life was a life where he matched up to that example of always being in prayer. It is significant in this verse here, in John 17, verse 1, that he describes this period of time that's approaching and he knows uh, what is ahead. And he describes it as the hour. He says, the hour is come. And yet for any of you who know what lies ahead at this time, it's not just an hour of 60 minutes. It is a night, a long night of mock trials followed by six hours being crucified on a cross followed by three days and three nights in the tomb which when we read the book of Psalms and read the book of Acts tells us it's more than just the grave. And all of those things take place before his glorious ascension. He, But he calls it an hour. And yet I've just said to you that that hour, what he calls an hour is a night and six hours in a daytime followed by three days and three nights. And we're going to look this morning at a lot about the concept of suffering and dark hours in your life. And you know, if suffering in your life was confined to 60 tangible minutes, it would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? If suffering came your way and you looked at your watch and thought, and maybe some of that's, some of you are feeling that way about my preaching right now. You're looking at your watch thinking only a little bit longer to go and then the suffering will be over. If suffering was confined to 60 minutes, we could all handle it, could we not? Have you ever had some intense form of feeling and you just knew that it was going to go away fairly quickly and all you had to do was endure it? I can think back to a time, Brother Beaver, I've never seen Jonathan Beaver laugh so hard, and he can laugh with the best of them. We went to East Coast Wings once, and I like to eat hot, spicy food. And between Brother Jonathan and Mr. Kimberlin over there, he's, looking, he's smiling a very guilty smile. Those guys talked me into what East Coast Wings call an insanity wing. And when you have to pull gloves on before you pick up the chicken wing, and when you have to sign a legal disclaimer, you know it's going to be a little bit warm. And I, I got into that thing, and one bite into that thing, and it no longer looked like a chicken wing, it looked like an entire turkey. <laughs> Whoa. And I devoured that thing as quickly as I could. I could not hardly breathe. I chugged water, ice water, until I could chug ice water no more. They were bringing me milk until I could drink milk no more. They were cramming bread in my mouth to try and get the heat out of my mouth. And I became fairly antisocial because they were all laughing at my misfortune. 
But you know, I kept, and, and I had to, I, I had to walk outside to get away from people because I was in, you ever get to that point where, and suffering does, suffering makes you want to get away from people. Does it not? And I was at that point, they were all laughing, having a good time, and I was in fits of agony, and I was outside the East Coast Wings just pacing back and forth, back and forth. And I would be looking at my watch and be thinking, 15 minutes, and I'm promising you, 15 minutes into this thing, it felt like it was still there in my mouth. It was agony. At about the 20-minute mark, things just started calming down just a little. And 25 minutes after eating that wing, I came back in, and I'm like, yep, okay, that was good, let's go. I was okay again, but 25 minutes of suffering. That's nothing, really. And if you're wondering why I did it, it's because I'm just one of those gullible suckers that does things to impress other people. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid. So let that, let that serve as your public service warning this morning. Don't ever eat an insanity wing because you're going to be hurting if you do. Suffering. It wasn't even an hour of suffering. It was only 25 minutes. But Jesus called this the hour. Now, in John chapter 12, Jesus prayed, Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, but for this cause came I unto this hour. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus said to Pilate, to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world. He came to suffer for our sins. And he knew that. It's worth noticing that he described it here as the hour, but elsewhere when he speaks to the chief priest, to the captains of the temple, and to the elders in Luke chapter 22, he describes it as not the hour, But he basically, I don't know whether he physically did, but he basically poked his finger at the chief priests and the elders and said, this is your hour. He didn't say it was the hour, he said it's your hour. And does anyone know what he said next? He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. That's That's a bold statement to make, isn't it? You know what he basically was saying to all of those religious leaders? He was saying, you're aligned to darkness. And I'm the light of the world. The Bible tells us in the future, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, it says there will be ten significant world leaders during the the tribulation. And it says that those ten world leaders, they will receive power as kings one hour with the beast. It goes on to say that these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So the Bible shows us that they give their power unto Satan and they receive his power in return and they compromise their eternity for what they think is an hour of glory. And one wise Christian man said, never sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the immediate, but that's exactly what those ten world rulers will do in the future. They will give their power one, to get power one hour with the beast. And I promise you that those ten foolish men who sacrifice everything to get power for one hour, isn't that interesting that one of the televangelists, by the way, has a TV program called The Hour of Power? This is your hour and the power of darkness. <laughs> 
That's because he's a crooked televangelist, that guy. And if you bump into him, tell him hi and tell him I said so. Um, these guys will get power for an hour and then they will spend eternity regretting the foolishness of what they did in that one hour. What am I trying to say in all of this? This is just an introduction to the, the message here this morning. I'm trying to say that Jesus, this time in Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion is an hour of darkness, an hour of spiritual darkness. It was a time of agony. It was a time of betrayal. It was a time of suffering. And I'm not trying to make light of any suffering that you have in your life, but I will say this. Chances are that of all of the people here in this room this morning, not one of you or I are ever going to experience suffering the way that Jesus experienced suffering crammed into that period of time, which is probably roughly about 90 hours. It was suffering of a depth and intensity that you and I won't understand. It was a physical agony. It was an emotional agony. It was a spiritual agony. And it was just dark, dark, dark at that time. Now we know because we are Bible-believing people and most of us have read further in the book before. We know that eventually that darkness is turned into glorious light and victory. And we ought to thank God for that. Always remember that when you're going through suffering that God can turn suffering into victory. But there is this mindset in Christianity today this name it and claim it. This idea that all you have to do is believe positive things and positive things will start happening. And that is not the teaching of the Bible. We need to be careful. You know, uh, we are not a church that believes the doctrines of Calvinism, but there are a lot of Christians who aren't Calvinist in their theology that become practical Calvinists by saying, well, everything works out for the best. Everything does not work out for the best. And some of you might be challenging me in your mind, thinking, oh yeah, what about Romans chapter 8? Yes, all things work together for good to them that love God. And loving God according to Jesus includes obeying Him. And so to take the mindset of saying, well, everything will just work out for the best, if you don't love God and don't obey His Word, there is no guarantee for you that it's just going to work out for the best. It's a conditional promise of His Word. And it's conditional upon a right heart attitude, and that attitude is known by obedience. As an example... If you allow, during dark times in your life, if you allow a root of bitterness to germinate in your heart and you become bitter in your heart because of your suffering, then the results won't be all good. The results of bitterness will be defilement. And so this morning I want to show you some things from the Scripture how Jesus reacted to dark times in his life. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. You turn to Hebrews 2 and I'll turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 
tells us that we are supposed to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And there in Hebrews chapter 2, let's look at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in, watch this, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Did you ever wonder why, by the way, we understand because of our sin, we understand that a sinless substitute had to die for our sin, right? But surely in in terms of the gospel, in terms of making the payment, in terms of making the atonement for our sin, Christ had to die for our sin. He didn't have to suffer for it in order to bring us salvation. And if you've never thought about that before, stop and think about that. He had to die for our sins. He had to shed his blood for our sins, but couldn't, surely couldn't it? As far as God being willing to forgive us on his behalf, it could have been quick. But it wasn't. So why was Jesus suffering long? And by the time you walk out of here this morning, you'll understand why it was. That verse there gives you a little bit of a clue. In that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor. What does that mean? It means to comfort, to nourish and strengthen them that are tempted. By what? Suffering. How many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes before in the Old Testament? Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Generally speaking, if you read that book, would you describe Solomon after reading that book? Would you describe him as being an optimist or a pessimist? It's a very pessimistic outlook on life, isn't it? That book which, by the way, some of the cults really struggle with. They come up with all sorts of strange doctrines out of that, not understanding that it is written from the perspective of the man under the sun. Okay? It's written from the human perspective, the human mind. Even though Solomon had all the wisdom, he wrote this book. Basically, this is what happens. This is basically Solomon saying, this is how you're going to get philosophy if you abandon wisdom. And look at everything from the world's point of view. And he becomes very pessimistic there as he wrote, 
the book of Song of Solomon and listen to what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse number 8. He says, but if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. That's not an optimistic outlook on life, is it? Let him remember the days of darkness, but they shall be many. But I want you also to understand that what he also said there, and he's getting towards the conclusion of that book in chapter 11, he said, if a man live many, what? If a man live many years and rejoice in how many of those years? And rejoice in them all. Then he says, the days of darkness, they shall be many. I want you to understand something really important about life and suffering. Suffering is something that goes through days, but you can still enjoy the years. You can have bad days within an otherwise good year, and it's up to you and your relationship with God whether you're going to focus on what was good in that year or what was bad in those days. It's taking a right outlook. It's taking a right attitude and a right perspective that will make a difference in your life. Now for you in your life, your hour of darkness may be physical pain. No one really enjoys physical pain. It may be a bad prognosis for the future of your health. No one likes to get old, but it's better than the alternative, right? The aging process, things start to grind down, wear down. When our car gets old, we usually just get rid of it and get something new, right? It's not so easy to do that with the human body. And so some people, their darkness can be in the form of a prognosis from a doctor. I used to work for a guy when I lived in Kansas City, one of the best bosses I have ever worked for. Uh, he and his brother were both, um, when they were in their teenage years, <coughs> they were two of the best motocross bike, uh, motorbike racers in America. Like they traveled America, they had the trophies and the ribbons and they would win everywhere they went. And one day my boss, Ron, had an accident on motocross and he knew he was in a bit of trouble when he crashed his bike because he couldn't get up and he couldn't feel anything. And I think you understand what came next. I met Ron probably 30 years after his accident and Ron had spent the last 30 years in a wheelchair because he broke his back, severed his spinal cord and became a uh, not quadriplegic, but a paraplegic. That's, that's serious stuff, is it not? Now, do you think a guy like that has plenty of dark days? Yeah, he does. But you know what? He was an absolute pleasure to work for. Because somewhere along the way, he'd found the Lord. He wasn't an independent Baptist. He was some other group. But let me tell you something. Whatever they'd taught him, he was living the way a man in a wheelchair ought to be living. But it was still dark days. 
for him. And there's no real prognosis for improvement in the future, although stem cell research and things like that are starting to look really encouraging and optimistic. Uh, Maybe for you, your darkness would be emotional pain. And emotional pain, some people who only have physical pain and no emotional pain, they'll never know or understand what you're going through. But Jesus does. Maybe your pain will be the pain of betrayal. And that's a serious thing. That's an underestimated thing. People may, ah, well, you've got to expect people are going to let you down. That doesn't make it feel any better. Maybe your pain will be financial pain through unemployment, through an unexpected damage or loss. For many, their pain, their darkness will be close personal relationships, maybe even that breakdown of the closest personal relationship between husband and wife. And that's a, that's a dark thing I can imagine to go through. All of those things and many more can lead to hours of darkness in your life. And what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to react? Life doesn't seem to come with a guidebook on turn to chapter 3 and it tells me how to deal with, right? We're not well equipped. We're not well educated. We can't prepare for every situation and know how to respond when it happens, right? Kind of, sort of. But that's why we're looking at the scripture this morning in John chapter 17. So if you turn back there to John chapter 17... Let's look at the perfect example. How did Jesus not so much react, but how did he act when darkness came his way? Before we even look at what we're about to look at, can I tell you this? If you're human, and I'm very human, and you look very human, most of you, If you're human and if you're like me, when darkness comes my way, my natural reaction is to become not that different from an eight-month-old baby that I have in my household at the moment and think that it's all about me. And I don't feel good right now and Everyone needs to cater to me. That's how babies react and we expect that of them, right? But that's how most people react when darkness comes their way as well. And that is, that's human nature, but that's not what Jesus does. You know where Jesus starts? You need to focus very carefully when suffering comes your way. Chapter 17 and verse 1, Jesus begins with one word, Father, Father. And I'll tell you the very first thing that you need to do when darkness comes your way, you need to get the focus off of you as quickly as you can and get your focus as quickly as you can. You need to get the telephone line open and get open communication between you and the Father in heaven. And the quicker you get out of the spiral of woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, And the quicker you lift up your eyes 
and look to the Lord and say, Father, and it better not be an accusatory. You better not be making accusation when you're looking at him. You'd better be coming to him for help. And in verse number four, Jesus, he says, I've glorified thee on the earth. I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Can I tell you something today? When darkness, when suffering comes your way, one of the greatest assets you have is to have a good testimony in your life where you'll be able to say to the Lord, say, Lord, I have been trying to do what you wanted me to do. And if you cannot say that with a clear conscience, then your time in darkness is going to really be rough. Because if you can't say like Jesus said, I've done or I've been trying to do what you want me to do, Lord. If you can't say that, if you've been trying to do your own thing and darkness comes your way, your conscience is going to gnaw at you. It's going to eat at you and say, you bought this on yourself. You deserve this because you haven't been doing right. And you know what? You'll be right. But Jesus didn't do that. He reminded the father of his obedience. He requests of the father what he's worthy of. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus basically reminds the Father here and says, I gave up, I gave up my glory to come here and do this. And Lord, please remember that. Have you ever given up anything for the Lord? I, I hope you have. Paul, the Apostle Paul gave up everything and he said, it's all right, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I just count that but done. And then he resigns himself to the Father's will in Luke chapter 22 where he prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. That's, that's usually the first, peop- the first prayer that people make when they go into darkness and when they go into suffering. Lord, take this away from me. But Jesus didn't end it there. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so Jesus begins with an upwards focus. Then I want you to consider here in John 17, he also has, and you will have as well, he has an inwards focus. That's your natural one is the inwards focus. But look at how Jesus' inwards focus is different. What is our temptation when we go into suffering? We are tempted to become bitter at our suffering. We are tempted to become self-centered about our suffering. We are tempted to complain about our suffering. We are tempted to lash out at others because we're suffering. I can be guilty of that. You know, James, the book of James tells you to confess your faults one to another. Uh, that, that's a fault that I have where I can become very, very short-fused and short-tempered if I'm suffering. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not a person that talks much about my suffering. I can, I can literally have a headache for days on end without anyone else even knowing about it. I don't tell the people I work with. I usually don't even tell my wife. I don't tell my kids. But if I'm not careful, as I'm suffering through a headache, I'll start to lash out and take it out on them over silly little things. Because we start becoming selfish. You need to be careful about your inwards focus that you have when you're suffering. But look at what Jesus does. In verse 19, And for their sakes 
I sanctify myself. You know what Jesus focused? When Jesus had an inwards focus here, he realized that suffering. You do realize the Bible says that Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You say, when did Jesus get closest to sin? At the time of the deepest suffering. You know when it's easiest for you to sin? The more you're suffering, the easier it is for you to snap and sin. And Jesus realizing the temptation that comes with suffering, his inwards focus is, I sanctify myself. Suffering is an opportunity for you if you take the right attitude to double down, to realize the temptation that comes with suffering, to realize the devil sees you at a moment and time of weakness and will attack during that moment and time of weakness. And you need to realize and say, I'm not feeling happy right now if it's emotional suffering or betrayal or something like that. Or I'm not feeling good right now if it's physical suffering. And realize if I'm not careful, I'm going to do something stupid or say something stupid and hurt someone that I love. And Jesus says, I sanctify myself. And thank God that he did. So he has the inwards focus. It's not a focus on self-pity. It's not a focus on whether you deserve it or not. Days of darkness can bring even the sweetest saint to the point of bitterness. And the only thing that will prevent a sinful reaction is an intense dedication to personal sanctification. One of the hymn writers said it like this, I must tell Jesus all of my trials I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. So Jesus had a right upwards focus to the Father. He had a right inwards focus. His focus was on sanctification, not on revenge against Judas. Think about that. Not on revenge against Judas. When Judas Iscariot turns up in the garden, Jesus calls him friend. And the Bible says that Jesus did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. Which means when Jesus called Judas friend in the garden, do you know what it means? It means he meant he still considered him a friend. He wasn't focused on revenge. He wasn't focused on bitterness. He wasn't focused on the betrayal that he experienced from Judas. He had the right inwards focus and he was sanctified. And then we need to consider the outwards focus. Jesus said in verse number 9, John 17 verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus here in his hour of darkness is praying for, not for his enemies, He's not focused on his enemies. He said, I pray not for the world. We tend to focus on our enemies when things are going bad. Jesus said, I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on my disciples. You know, the Bible says Jesus understood 
the Old Testament prophesied, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm praying for my sheep because I know what's about to happen to them. When you go through your darkest hour in life, you'd better remember that others around you are going to be affected by it. You may feel weak during your darkest hour, but remember that someone in your life is weaker than you. The Lord said in Luke 22, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus, in his hour of weakness, looked at Simon. He said, you're really weak. You need me to pray for you. And by the way, when you do get strong, then it's your job to go and strengthen someone else. In other words, if you take the right attitude during suffering in your life, you will strengthen another person. You will set them an example where they can strengthen another person. It's the right kind of outwards focus. He prays for the Father to keep them in John seventeen eleven. He prays for the Father to give them joy in verse 13. He prays for the Father to keep them from evil in verse 15. And he prays for the Father to sanctify them as well. Remember he prayed, uh, he, he prayed and said, I sanctify myself. But then at the end of verse 19, he says that they also might be sanctified through thy truth. It's an example of sanctification. Dark times in your life, dark hours in your life are an opportunity for you to set an example to others. And I have seen that over the years. I have seen that in a, a quite often. We see it in God's senior saints. We see the example that the older folks set. The wonderful example of faithfulness that some of the people have set in our church. I've only been here now at this church for six years, but we've seen a lot of God's saints go home to glory just in the last six years. But some of those people are here every Sunday when they didn't feel good. And they were, they were inspirational to others. And they've showed to a younger generation that you can continue to be faithful to the Lord even when you don't feel good. And it's that kind of example that churches need that the contemporary church doesn't have old people setting that example to the youngins. I remember seeing some years ago at a time out in the, the church where my wife grew up, Treasure Valley Baptist Church in Idaho, where Pastor Mitchell served for 12 or 13 years on staff there. I visited many years there over the years. There was a time there where the pastor of the church went through a lot in a short period of time. And if you're wondering what I mean by a lot, I mean he got leukemia and could have died from it. That's pretty serious business, isn't it? Then he had a grandchild, a little baby granddaughter that was born and most of her insides were on the outside. 
And she's still alive today, that little girl, but she's been through more surgeries than you could imagine. They had to do amazing things. She spent most of the first few years of her life in hospital. And he would spend a lot of time at the hospital visiting his little grandchild there in hospital. Then his other daughter had twins. And over the space of a few short days, both of the twins died. How would you cope in times like that? Losing two grandchildren and having one with severe physical disabilities while fighting leukemia yourself. That's serious business. You know what I remember? I remember being in a church service there and they were singing a hymn and the song leader was uh, announced that they were going to sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. And while he was going through all of this suffering, and that song talks about that calls me from a world of care. And you know what I saw of that man? If you know, if you know him, he's a, he's a fairly big man. He's not a super tall man, but he's, he's tallish. He has hands like a bear. He's just a big, sturdy, strong man. But life and circumstances can bring a big, strong, sturdy man to his knees. And going through all of that darkness that he was going through, as they were singing that hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, I remember him, and he was pacing the stage, holding his Bible like this, and he was just marching up and down to the stage, and he was a man that the world would have looked at and said, there's a man who's losing. Satan would have looked at him and said, there's a man I'm beating. And there's a man that God looked at and said, there's a man that's winning. And he set an example, and he's a good friend of mine, he's a good preacher, and I promise you, I will probably, I will probably, as I go, when I get old and go to my grave, I will probably have received more from seeing him marching up and down a stage with a hymn book in his hand, praising the Lord, than I'll ever remember anything he preached in a pulpit. Because he set an example during a time of darkness in his life. And what an example our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has set for us. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to look at verse number 20. The temptation during times of darkness is to focus on right here, right now. But Jesus in John chapter 17 verse 20 is looking at the future. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus is not looking at the cross. He's not looking at the grave. He's looking beyond the cross. He's looking beyond the grave. He's looking to the gospel. He's looking to Pentecost where 3,000 people are going to get saved. He's looking towards 5,000 people getting saved shortly after that. He's looking forward to Paul becoming born again and Paul taking the gospel and spreading it around the world. And Jesus in his darkest hour is looking to the future. You know, the Bible says you need to understand during times of suffering. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible 
Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, it says that weeping may endure for a, for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. When's the morning? It's when the darkness is past. And you may weep during a time of darkness in your life, but you'd better focus on the reality that joy cometh in the morning. Now that's easy for you to say, well, that was easy for Jesus because Jesus could see the future and I can't see the future. And that's a partly true line of thinking. You know, the Bible says during those three hours of darkness on the cross that it was more than just the physical darkness of the sun being blotted out. Jesus said in two, uh, it's recorded in both Matthew and in Mark where Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he was not answered by the Father. And he followed those words shortly with the statement, Father, into thy hands commend I my spirit. Can I ask you this question this morning? You might say, well, Jesus could see the future. And I say at that time, I don't know whether he could or not. It was such an intense darkness. But can I ask you this this morning? Do you need to be able to see the future in order to be able to trust the Father? Or can you just trust Him whether you can see the future or not? In May last year, our family went through something that we never thought would happen, something we didn't want to happen, and something I wouldn't wish on anyone. Many of you here today, you understand a little about that because you remember we had that little baby girl that we had adopted. And after having that little baby girl for 16 days, we found out that the adoption had failed and we had to take that baby back. And I spent many hours over many days crying with my wife and my children. And I can't tell you how many times I had to say to my children and my wife, I don't know why. You know, men by their very nature like to be problem solvers. Men like to fix things. Men like to have answers. And there are times that could come your way in life where you have no fix, no resolution and no answer. But you know what? Every time, every time I told my family and said, I don't know why, I did not fail to tell them and say, I don't know how this is going to work out. But I do know that God has this situation under control. I do know He's going to take care of us. I do know He still loves us. And one day we'll look back and we'll see His hand in this. And I tell you now in September of 2019 that that was true in every detail. And God has been good to us through all of what we went through. He's given us another baby now. We just love her to death. She's ours. She's ours forever. We can't lose her. And we're just having the time of our life. But we went through some darkness to get there. 
And for what it's worth, if you ever wonder about that, you say, oh, do you get over that sort of thing? No. No, it still hurts. Still hurts, but there were benefits. That time of darkness brought us together as a family in a way that nothing else ever did. That hour of darkness showed my boys that God can be trusted even when life hurts and life doesn't make sense. Job said in Job chapter 13 verse 15 after losing his whole, all of his children, not just one, and losing his health and losing his wealth, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And God can be trusted through your hours of darkness. And you need to focus not just on the right here, right now when you're suffering, you need to focus on the future. I want to move quickly on to what I'm going to call the forgiving focus. In many, maybe not in all of life's dark days, but in many of life's dark days, there's going to be a human element. In the case of that story I just told you about our adoption, there was a lot of blame to be spread around. We could have blamed the birth mother who placed her child for adoption and then changed her mind. But do you realize if we blamed her, it wouldn't change a thing? You need to understand that. We could have blamed our lawyer. We had a lawyer, and I know people love to you know, give lawyers a hard time, but there was some paperwork that should have been filed on a Friday afternoon, and our lawyer didn't file that paperwork on a Friday afternoon. Presumably he just wanted to go and enjoy his weekend. He didn't file it till Monday morning, and that 48 hours over the weekend, that was the difference between whether that adoption succeeded or failed. Oh, we could blame the lawyer, but you know what? Still doesn't change anything. Okay, We could have blamed the legislators in the state of Kentucky who wrote the adoption laws that allowed those circumstances to happen. But if we blame the legislators, guess what? Do you see a recurring theme here? It doesn't change anything. And you've got to understand that during times of suffering and darkness in your life when there are people involved, and there often are, you can blame people till the cows come home and nothing will change. It's just not worth blaming people. Instead, you need to have a forgiving focus. John 17 verse 12, Jesus described Judas. He says, none of them is lost but the son of perdition. And as I said before in Matthew 26, when Judas Iscariot then turns up, Jesus knows he's the son of perdition. And when he turns up in the garden, Jesus says, friend, wherefore art thou come? While Jesus is on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he says these wonderful words. He says, as he's being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you can't take a forgiving attitude in your hours of darkness, it's going to hurt you, not the people that you won't forgive. When you can't forgive people who allow darkness to come your way in your life, it will result in the root of bitterness that Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. 
And that root of bitterness, it will first of all, it will defile you, as it says in Hebrews 12. And you'll become known for your bitterness. It will define you. And if you don't get that bitterness fixed in your heart, eventually it will defeat you. And the whole time while it's defiling you, defining you and defeating you, you'll be continuing to blame others, others, others and nothing will change, nothing will be fixed and it's just every time you blame another, you're just putting another nail in your own coffin. That's all you're doing. You've got to stop and you've got to be willing to forgive. You say, well, they, they aren't worthy of forgiveness. Neither was Judas Iscariot, but he called him friend. Neither were the people who crucified him, but he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We've got to follow Jesus' example of being willing to forgive. Now I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and I'm getting to a conclusion here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember I said at the outset that theologically speaking, Jesus had to die for our sins and had to shed his blood for our sins, but theologically speaking, there was no necessity for his suffering to be a long period of time. Could have been quick. And it still would have, I hate to use that term, but it still would have got the job done. He still could have earned our salvation by dying for our sins and dying quickly, right? So why was it drawn out? Why was... Why was there betrayal? Why was there mock trials? Why was he scourged, first of all? Why did they put the crown of thorns on him? Why did they have to spit in his face and buffet him with a rod? Why all of those extra things? What was the point of all of that? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. It says, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye are buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. If you do well and suffer for it, and take it patiently, that's acceptable with God. You know what God wants you to do? Notice the word there. The word there, this is acceptable to God. That's an interesting word, isn't it? God accepts that. You know, when I think of that word acceptable, do you know where it takes me running in my Bible? It takes me running straight to Romans chapter 12 which says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's acceptable with God for your body to be a living sacrifice. It is acceptable uh, with God for you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and seeking His will, those things are acceptable with God and it is also acceptable with God for you to patiently suffer well. But how? How can we patiently suffer well? It goes against the grain of our entire human nature to suffer patiently. 
and to suffer well. Well, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the very next verse. For even hereunto were ye called. Called to what? Called to patient, acceptable suffering. Because Christ also suffered for us. Watch it. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Do you know why Jesus' suffering was long? Do you know why it was drawn out? Do you know why there was mock trials all night long? And the compelling him to carry the cross and the scourging and the spitting and the betrayal and all of those other things that went along leading up to his death. Do you know why all of those things took place? Because he left us an example of how to get through dark times in your life. Look at verse number 23 and then we're finished. It says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Thank God for that. In one of the hymns in our hymnal, there's a hymn called, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. And there's a line in that song that says, Days of darkness still come o'er me. Sorrow's paths I often tread, but the Savior still is with me. By his hand, I'm safely led. Days of darkness don't go away just because we want them to. It's not all just sunshine every day because that's what we want. Bad things will still come your way. But it's okay because the Savior still is with me and by his hands, I'm safely led. Would you bow your head this morning? I ask you to to bow your head. We're going to have an invitation now. I'm going to ask Pastor Mitchell to come at this time. And there's a reason why I asked you to bow your head right now. And that is when you bow your head and close your eyes, physically speaking, the moment you shut your eyes, it's dark. And the moment you open your eyes, it's light again. And here's all I'd ask of you this morning. If while you have your head bowed and your eyes shut right now, You say, physically I'm in darkness, but maybe emotionally you're in darkness. Maybe spiritually you're in darkness. Maybe you're suffering the darkness of physical pain this morning. I'm not one to play emotional traps and tricks and force people to do things they don't want to do, but I tell you what, Jesus is called the light of the world. And if you're suffering here this morning and you don't know how to deal with your suffering, you can simply open your eyes and come to him at this altar. And I promise you, he can give you light where no one else can give you light to help you in your time of darkness today. Whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, whether it's the result of foolish decisions of the past or just life happening circumstances beyond our control. Job suffered because of Satan's attack. 
Other men have suffered just because man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Job understood that. Some of the best men in the Scripture still went through some tough times. One thing I can promise you, whatever you're going through, we've got a Savior who understands. Beyond that, He cares. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 7 says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. The altar is open. If you've got a care, you've got a trial, a circumstance, a suffering that you're going through, that you'd like to come down and talk to God and ask for His grace, ask for His strength, be a great opportunity to just come down to an old-fashioned altar, get on your knees and pour out your heart to the Lord. Maybe you've got something in your past, a suffering, a circumstance that you've went through, and it's just chipped away at your spirit. Now think about what David said in Psalm 51. He said, renew in me a right spirit. Boy, life has a way of just beating us up, wearing us out. But we can get a renewed spirit. We can get that refreshment from the Lord if we'll just open up our heart and humble ourselves and come to Him. How about it, brother and sister? You have something you need to come and talk to the Lord about. Let's stand to our feet. Hymn number 261 is our invitation song. As we sing, the altar is open. As we stand, as we sing, if you need to come, then you come.